The content in this podcast is meant for mature audiences only, 18 and up, as some of it may be difficult to listen to. Continuing to listen to this content releases Rest, Virginia Dixon, and Nancy Piercy from All Liability. everyone to the rest podcast where our goal is to help each and every one of you displace confusion chaos and dis-ease in order to heal and find significance in life i am your host natalie williams and i am here with the author of the reconstitution method for healing and rest virginia dixon nancy piercy is the author of love thy body answering hard questions about life and sexuality as well as the soul of science saving leonardo finding truth and total truth She is professor and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University. Having been quoted in The New Yorker and Newsweek, she is highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today. Nancy, I'm so thankful to record this segment. Our herald as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual, your best-selling author and speaker who serves as professor of apologetics, and scholar-in-residence at the Houston Baptist University. This is so impressive on so many levels, and because I followed your work for so long, I can't tell you what a privilege and an honor it is to introduce you to our listening audience. We just finished recording another segment, and it's way too complex to release this Friday. I want to have this conversation with you. You address philosophy, theology, and academics of complex issues like no one I've ever heard. You're so practical, both in how you explain and how you apply. The conversations can get a little thick sometimes, and the read, I have to go back and read everything several times. But at the end of the day, I found your work to communicate total truths. And you invite me to reason about these complex things in a way that have been instrumental, honestly, in my life's work. You have so much integrity, dignity, sensibility in how you address everything. But it's your invitation to reason that I have found most compelling. I would like you to speak to femininity perhaps, a little briefly, but I know you're doing a lot of research on masculinity, and we're ending a segment on that this month. So can you speak about that? Well, I'm really glad you asked me about masculinity, because it is something I've been researching a lot lately, and I have a book coming out uh, several months from now still, but I'll give you one of the highlights. One of the highlights to, to read work by sociologists. Sociologists have been doing studies of theologically conservative Christian family men. And the reason they have been is because the critics have been attacking Christians, Christian men in particular, saying that thousands of years, Christians have believed in some kind of male authority in the home. And critics say that if you believe in any form of male authority, that's going to lead to abuse. 
that's going to lead to domestic violence. And so sociologists uh, decided to test the theory. You know, a lot of these, these, uh, these accusations had no empirical data to support them. So they tested them. I've, I have several, several sociological studies that I quote, roughly, well, I'd say about a dozen. So it's quite a few studies. Um, and what they found was just the opposite. Surprisingly, amazingly, they found that theologically conservative Christian family men, by family men, they mean married with children, are the most loving husbands, the most engaged fathers, have the lowest level of divorce, and the lowest level of domestic violence of any group in America. Even Christians don't know that. This was just stunning. As soon as I read it, I knew I had to write a book on this. <laughs> and the reason even Christians don't know it is that Christian leaders will often say that Christians have the same level of divorce as everyone else. You've probably heard that. I certainly yeah. have. Well, so the sociologists went back to the data. And they found that Christian evangelicals can be divided into two groups. There are the truly committed men who attend church regularly. And in America, there are a lot of nominal Christians. And that means people who consider themselves you know, on a survey, they might check off the Baptist box, say, because of their family background and their, their cultural background, but they don't attend church regularly. And nominal Christian men are the least loving husbands, the least engaged fathers, highest level of divorce. And the real stunner is they have the highest level of domestic violence of any group in America, higher even than secular men. So this huge divide is what I'm dealing with in my book on masculinity. How do we affirm Christian men who are doing a good job? Probably the, the top marriage sociologist in the country is named uh, Brad Wilcox. And his most recent article in the New York Times, that kind of tells you what status he has. He writes for places like the New York Times. His most recent article in the New York Times, he said, they're testing wives because after all, if the, if the accusation is Christianity leads to domestic abuse, one of the things you ask is how happy are their wives? <laughs> Do the wives feel abused? And in, in the New York Times, he wrote, the happiest wives in America are the wives of theologically conservative Christian men with traditionalist gender ideology. <laughs> Did you catch all that? Yeah, wow. They're the, the happiest wives in America are married to Christian men who are theologically conservative and have traditionalist gender ideologies. Now, that is just newsworthy. Nobody knows that. Nobody believes that. I think even in Christian circles, we're more apologetic. We just don't, we don't know the great treasure that we have, that, that, that God's word gives us guidelines to have the best marriages in America. And that's not church talk, empirical observation. Exactly. And when we are lukewarm in those convictions, half-hearted, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. They are absolutely, the nominal Christians are worse than secular people. Now, they don't conjecture why that is. That, that would be an, apparently they hang around the church enough to pick up language like headship and submission, but they don't pick up the biblical meaning of those terms. And instead they inject secular meanings. 
in other words, the secular world has has a very toxic view of masculinity in our day. The secular script has grown increasingly uh, increasingly toxic over time. And so what nominal Christians do is they inject secular meanings into these biblical terms, and they, they end up with the, the worst of both worlds. Wow, what you said just now is really profound. That's the newsflash. Can you say it slower for us and repeat it? Everyone needs to listen to this twice because that's profound, what you just said. Well, in my book on masculinity, I'll, I'll give a little more background because that'll, that'll slow it down too. In my book on masculinity, one of my goals is to figure out where did we even come up with the notion that masculinity is toxic? You know, where did we get that phrase, toxic masculinity? How did it become part of our vocabulary, our public discourse? And so I do look at how the secular script for men developed. How did secular ideas of men grow worse and worse, go more and more hostile, go more and more negative and critical? And I do show, I mean, America started out largely Christian in its culture, right? I mean, we started out with the Puritans. <laughs> and so our views of marriage and masculinity were very biblical, really up until about the Industrial Revolution. You can see, if you, if you read the Puritan literature, it's much better than most people think. People think of, I don't know, the, the, witch, the, the witch trials. But if you read the actual literature, it's very biblical. They had a very, very much of a caretaking standard for men. It's rich. It's rich. I mean, even I was surprised once I got into reading it. Mm -hmm. um, but they, so before the Industrial Revolution, America had a, very much of a caretaking standard for men. Men were caretakers of, the hus of, their, of their household, their family, and of the community. They were expected to be, quote unquote, fathers of the community as well. With the Industrial Revolution, men were taken out of the home. And, and for the first time in human history, men were working as individuals alongside other men in competition with them. And so that's really when the vocabulary describing men began to change. Instead of describing them in that caretaking role, the language of men began to focus on competition and aggression and looking out for number one and the bottom line and assertiveness, et cetera, et cetera. The language changed dramatically. And I keep, I trace it in my book, I trace it, you know, uh, further on it but the language that that was the most that was the most important shift if you remember correctly weren't most of the parenting books and the home ec rooms and books and all that written by men and for men and for men yeah exactly before it was uh, roughly the toward the end of this uh, industrial revolution there was a shift before that books on parenting and family were all adjusted to men because they were the head of the household uh, and after the uh, Industrial Revolution, you see this shift. Suddenly, men become invisible. Fathers become invisible in the books and pamphlets and sermons and so on on family. All of a sudden, they're addressed to women. And of course, we're used to that now. But that was when the shift happened. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so, you know, instead of affirming men in their role in their relationships with women and children, men were increasingly affirmed only in being, you know, tough, you know, the Lone Ranger who's out there, the, the, the captain of industry, even the shifted. It's just, this, is when, this is when we got fiction of the cowboy, escaping from civilization, escaping from the bonds of family and marriage, and finding the true self out in the wilderness. 
without going into more detail, the language describing men became more and more negative, more and more critical. So when I say today, when you look at uh, nominal Christian men who are even worse than secular men in their behavior toward their, toward their families, it's because they've picked up the language of headship and submission from the church, but they haven't picked up, they haven't hung around enough to pick up the biblical meaning. And so they inject the secular meaning into those terms. And the secular meaning, unfortunately, has become increasingly toxic over the years. And when Christian men pick up the secular script, they end up in some ways even worse than secular men. I mean, that's what, that's what the data is showing. That's what the data is showing. That's amazing. What hope do you see? What changes, what shift do you see taking place? I always say, Nancy, that men are sensitive and women are emotional. And that's been my observation. And not to get into research that I've read and that supported that. But the women have so much power, yet men by nature have authority. And you look just at the anatomy, the constitution of a man and a woman. I can't tell you, even in radically liberal homes, the children need comfort from mom and look for protection from dad. And it's inborn, right? It's one of those inborn, lower upper story, whole person thing that we need to continue talking about. I see a lot of hope. What do you see? Well, uh, when I first started researching this, Christians weren't dealing much with uh, abuse in Christian homes. Uh, the hope I see is that there's more and more books on the subject. When I first started researching, there were hardly any. And I think it's great. I'm very encouraged by the fact that Christians are finally catching up with how much, you know, I, mean, I should tell you, in terms of sheer numbers, the number of committed Christians is about the same as the number of nominal men. Wow. Yeah. You know, I mean, I hang around with, I hang around, I teach at a Christian college. I hang around churches that are, you know, very committed. And so I kind of thought the numbers, the number of Christians who were committed would be higher. Uh, but no, the numbers are the same. So any Christian man you meet, 50-50 chance that he's either committed or he's just nominal. So that that was that was dis discouraging actually when I realized how how large the numbers were for these nominal men who are more who are more prone to domestic abuse. So that's why I say I think it's a very good thing that Christians are catching up with that and they're starting to write more and more books on the problem of domestic abuse from a Christian perspective, bringing biblical uh, answers to bear. It was really through through the seventies. It was always the wife's fault. You know, the wife was considered the one who had primary responsibility for making the marriage work. And if it wasn't working, it was his, her fault. And she needed to be more submissive and more loving and cook his favorite dinners and so on. If you read literature on abuse, you realize that doesn't work. <laughs> you don't deal with bullies by acquiescing to them, whether that's, you know, the, the playground bully or whether it's international affairs or whether you have a bully for a husband, it doesn't work. So fortunately, there are more and more books out there now by Christian counselors giving very biblically based ways of holding a husband accountable. You know, when the Bible says, don't love your wives and don't be harsh with them. You know, what do you do if you are married to someone who's harsh? What do you do? 
Uh, so there's more and more books that giving biblical responses to that. And I, I think that, that, that right now I'm hopeful because I see so much more literature now than there was just a decade ago. What would you say to men and women in a state of confusion, chaos, and disease? Some are married, some are not. But what would you say to those who have families and are a little bit overwhelmed and paralyzed by the feverish pitch of this abortion conflict, transgenderism, and just other hot topics surrounding masculinity, you just addressed that, and what it is to be a woman. What would you say to them to give them hope? Yeah, I wrote my book, Love Thy Body, in order to help people cut through all the details, you know, you easily get overwhelmed trying to, to master, you know, how, how do I argue on issues of abortion? How do I argue with the hookup culture? What do I argue on homosexuality, transgenderism? And what I show in Lovely Bodies is a single worldview that underlies them all. You know, that the secular worldview is the same running through all of them. And it's all that split that we talked about earlier, the split between the body and the person. Nancy, perhaps you can help people make sense of what's happening by first, before you give your final insights, explain the split that we find ourselves in. Right. You, you're not going to really understand these cutting edge moral issues unless you realize that there's a common underlying secular worldview that connects them all. You know, we've talked about Francis Schaeffer and the influence he had on you and, and me. And one of the things he used to say was, we tend we tend to deal with things in bits and pieces. That was his phrase, bits and pieces. You know, we, we, we master an argument for this issue and we master an argument for that issue. And we don't think in terms of the underlying worldview. It's actually much easier and much simpler if we master the underlying worldview that is informing all of these issues. So the, the first one that was the most, the, well, the one that's most obvious today is transgenderism. You know, the body person split. Uh, transgender activists argue explicitly that your biology, your body, has nothing to do with your gender identity. Your gender identity is completely split, separate from your body. So it is essentially, it is splitting people apart by saying, and not only splitting them, but making them hate their body. The New York Post just had an, argue, an article by a young woman who had detransitioned. She had lived as a boy for several years and then detransitioned. And she said, pushing young people into transitioning instead of teaching them to love their body. We're teaching them to hate their body, in fact. And I thought, that's it. That's, that's exactly why I wrote Love Thy Body. Because transgenderism teaches people, not only is your body not part of your authentic self, but it's actually an obstacle, obstacle to you being your authentic self. It's something you have to overcome. It teaches people to despise their body, to want to be, to want to suppress their body, to change it surgically if they can, but with puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgery, because their body is not part of their authentic self. So this would be this would be an example of that split. It's that's where it's most visible is in transgenderism, the split between the body and the person, that's setting the two off against each other. Let's use another example to drive the point home. You, in the last segment, you talked about the environment. That was so compelling. 
that's an example of how to bring them together. <laughs> how to overcome the split that resonates with a lot of people is the issue from en uh, environmentalism. What we've learned from the environmental movement is that to avoid pollution and ecological disasters, we have to work with the structure of nature. It doesn't mean you can't intervene, but when you do, you have to work with the structure of nature, not against it. And so when we talk to people about transgenderism, what our argument should be, we wanna help you to live in accord with the natural structure of your body. What we're saying is you should respect the natural structure of your own biology. And what I found is, well, I first started using this argument with a, a, a very close friend of mine who's a, an atheist, and she, immediately it, cl it clicked for her. She said, oh yeah, I get it. You know, like that tree outside the window. We want to treat it with respect. We want to treat nature with respect. And what you're saying is we our bodies are part of nature. And so our, our ethic always derives from your view of nature, by the way, because your body is part of nature. And what we're arguing is that we should treat our bodies with respect as well. That's interesting that you should say that. And, and I think especially having spoken about men and women and where we find ourselves, I just think having a tangible tool to discern, hey, what is this divide? Fact, value, divide, sacred, secular divide. It doesn't have to do with religion. It's an instrumental understand. It's a foundational understanding that we need to have to learn how to reason and have meaningful conversations and what otherwise would be a very polarizing discussion. It doesn't have to be that way. The last one is the body person divide. Good. Talk about that and you can close us out. Yeah, so, so when I talk about the transgender issue, it pits the body against the person, the, 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 your sense of who you are. And where that actually became known, uh, used widely was in the abortion debate because bioethicists agree that life begins at conception. I mean, ordinary people may not all be there, but professional bioethicists, they know. <laughs> they know that the, the human, uh, fetus is human from the beginning. It has human DNA, human genetics, physiologically, biologically, the fetus is human. So the question is then, how do they get around that to say that the, the you know, that abortion is okay? They say, well, the fetus is human, but it's not a person until sometime later, with personhood defined in, in terms of mental abilities, like cognitive functioning and self-awareness and so on. And so that's where the language of body versus person first became commonly used that, you know, in terms of the body, the fetus is human but it's not a person yet. And until it's a person, we don't value it. We don't give it moral standing. We don't, get, we don't provide legal protection. Body person dualism became, and it became known, you know, in the abortion issue. And of course, it's just the reverse for euthanasia. For euthanasia, it's if you lose a certain level of cognitive functioning, of self-awareness, then you kind of, you're no longer in the upper story to use that upper story, lower story metaphor. Now you're in the lower story only. You're, uh, and here's how one professional bioethicist put it. You are only a body. You are only a body. And at that point, your food and water can be withheld. Your, medic your medicine can be taken away. You can be unplugged. Your organs can be harvested. So you are no longer a person. So notice, by the way, in both, in both abortion and euthanasia, there's an acknowledgement 
that that person is still a human, that it has no human rights. So it, they've redefined the definition of human rights. Up until recently, if you said human and person, you thought it meant the same thing. <laughs> we use those words interchangeably. It wasn't until the abortion issue, when bioethicists began to say, they started using that gymnastics. They started to say, oh, well, you're a human, but you're not a person yet. Euthanasia, oh, you, you lost your personhood. Now you're just a human, and so you can be killed. You know, I mean, this is a life and death as long as you're just human, quote unquote. As long as the fetus is merely, quote unquote, human, it can be aborted. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be tinkered with genetically. You can do scientific experiments on it, and then you toss it out with the other medical waste. And that's exactly how medical journals refer to the fetus. They call it medical waste. So that's the import of the body person dualism. It was first devised as a way of getting around the problem of the fetus being human. How then do we justify abortion? Well, we have to do that. The professor from, was it Harvard or Yale that began this conversation? Who introduced this personhood theory? Yeah, I think it was Peter Singer. He's at Princeton. He's a bioethicist at Princeton. And as far as I know, he was the first person to start using the body-person dualism as a way of justifying abortion and euthanasia. It's disgusting that reason did not engage in that debate. I don't know. Talk about an escape from reason. How did they get away with that, Nancy? And I'll let you close us out because it's baffling to me. It's fun to talk to you because you have a smile on your face. I can lose sleep over these things. It's, it's just disgusting. I have a smile on my face because I love talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much fun because you get it. You get these issues. So you use the phrase escape from reason. And for our listeners who may not know that, that's the title of one of Francis Schaeffer's books. And you used it very appropriately because his whole point was with a split in the view of truth, a whole host of things, you use that metaphor of two stories in a building where you know, facts and science and reason are limited to the lower story. And anything that you cannot test in the, uh, in the scientific lab goes into the upper story. So meaning and purpose and human dignity and all of these important things are in the upper story when reason doesn't apply. And that's why he used the title Escape from Reason. He said, modern people with a split view of truth are escaping into the upper story, with, with, which is non-rational, in order to find meaning and purpose. And of course, it doesn't work because we are made in God's image. We are reasoning beings. And therefore, an irrational answer is never going to really satisfy. By the way, if you haven't read it, my book, Saving Leonardo, also goes into much greater detail on this split. And it fleshes it out in both philosophy and the arts. And so it's very interesting because with existentialism, you actually have philosophers saying point blank, there is no answer in the realm of reason. So we have to jump into the upper story and find answers only in the realm of non-reason, of irrationality. Irrationality was seen as a form of salvation. In art, for example, this would be the surrealists, if, you, if you're familiar with surrealism. Yeah. In literature, it would be the existentialists. So these are people who specifically said, we can't find answers to the big questions, meaning and purpose and identity 
in the lower story. We have to find that in the upper story. And that's why Schaefer called it Escape from Reason. By the way, do you know when I read Escape from Reason, <laughs> I thought it was a book on drugs. <laughs> I was part of the 60s, right? You know, so I was experimenting with drugs and I was reading books like Alan Watts, who was a philosopher and wrote specifically on how you could maybe use drugs to, to get higher level of consciousness. With that in mental health now too, as you probably well know. I'll tell you what comes to mind as we close this segment. All these discussions go out the window when somebody's dying. Everything becomes very clear and very focused. And the conversations do not become convoluted because something sacred is happening. And I deal with so many people that pass out of time. And I've reasoned that conception is a beginning. Birth is a beginning. And when we leave time, it's another beginning. And I recently found out that at the point of conception, there's light that they've detected in these cameras that happens at the point of conception. There's light birth light and i believe we step out of time and i've had the privilege of being there with so many many people but everything's so clear and so simple and a lot of the confusion chaos and dis-ease that often brings about different forms of death in our lives death of spirit death of hope death of relationships and all this stuff and all these theories, all these discussions, they can cause, they leave people in a state of dis-ease. And it's amazing to have these end-of-life conversations and how simple and wise people become. But by then, we've had our season in time and we move on. And it's to that end that I labor to invite people to a place of rest so they can reason relational, emotional, spiritual truth in order to reconcile the conflict within themselves. And I always start with the central nervous system to access the soul in, in hopes of getting them connected to their personhood, if you were their spirit. And when those things come into alignment, Nancy, amazing things happen with mental health, with addictions and families and marriages and companies. It's amazing what I see happen. But I think the basis of reason and the conversations we need to engage in, you give us such tangible ways to displace the confusion, the chaos that is upon us. You just give us simple, reasonable tools. Your books, I'm going to put every one of them on our website for people to have access to them. And this is certainly one of the heaviest conversations we've had. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the time you've given me today. Yeah, let's do this again. <laughs> if you'd like more information about Nancy Piercy or to get in touch, please go to her website, nancypiercy.com or Facebook page, Nancy R. Piercy. For updates about rest and this podcast, please visit our Instagram or Facebook, The Place of Rest. If you'd like more information about Virginia or to support and join the cause of rest, please go to virginiadixon.com forward slash collaborate or call 949-289-5935. Thank you for listening to Rest with Virginia Dixon. We'll see you next Friday. <laughs>